0: You're listening to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. Many of us may have never spared a thought for the complicated and intricate system that is our global supply chain, until, of course, that fine day in spring last year when a tanker ship called the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal. That one incident sparked a chain reaction, causing devastating interruptions felt around the world. The perfect illustration of how delicately balanced that complex web of trade and transportation powering our modern life really is. The supply chain has taken a battering these last two years. As economies started to reopen after Covid and consumers slowly returned to some of their old patterns, global production struggled to meet the demand. China, the world's workshop, is still hamstrung by lockdowns, shuttering factories and businesses. The explosion in remote working, demand for electric cars, and the devices that got us through lockdown has caused unprecedented demand for electronic chips. And if you thought this was a crisis that just meant you couldn't get your son his PlayStation 5 for Christmas, or you have a ludicrous 18-month wait for your new electric car, I have what may be alarming news for you. This crisis has national security implications too. Perhaps influenced by how much chaos global trade is currently suffering, lawmakers in the US have now voted to block a possible strike by railway workers that could have potentially devastating impact on the US economy as we entered the run-up to Christmas. That bill now heads to the Senate for approval. Well, someone who knows all about the supply chain crisis is Brian Wenk. He's CEO of Flatworld Solutions, a global supply chain and logistics company. He sat down with us at One Decision to talk us through exactly why the supply chain is in crisis mode and what it means for all of us. I want to get right to it and ask you firstly about the destabilization of COVID. I just want to read you something from The New York Times last December. The turmoil has revealed how the need to ship surgical masks to West Africa from China can have a cascading effect on Ford's ability to put backup cameras in its cars at factories in Ohio and delay the arrival of Amazon Prime orders in Florida in time for the holidays. I want to note, I found it very interesting that the New York Times, they didn't even have a logistics reporter uh, before COVID and now they do, uh, given how this issue has really come into the forefront. Um, so, Brian, to start off with, give us an upsum, um, an illustration from your point of view of what the pandemic did to supply chains around the world.
1: It's uh, a great question. So, a supply chain, by definition, is a chain, right? And it's the links of activity that make something that gets done over here actually become valuable or have an impact over here. For many, for most companies or organizations, it's a a single uh, a Length of chain so something gets made over here all these activities take place and it gets utilized over here um, But in the economic sense and certainly in the global sense that chain is actually a big loop So your article speaking to how one thing happening over here impacts uh, uh, whether or not my wife gets her, her Amazon packages on time for Christmas is so accurate because that all the links in that chain are used continually, right? The containers or the planes or whatever they are from here to here. But that plane's coming back with something else. And so if all of a sudden it stops like it did with the pandemic and things stop, the dependability of having access to a plane or a train or or a truck or a boat, if all of that stops, the cascading effect of that impacts everything. We were importing an FDA-regulated good every day uh, from from England, uh, from Heathrow, and it would come into the U.S., um, it would be cleared through customs, and and we would do the sort, we would do everything and get it direct to the customer the next day. And the process was extremely streamlined. Um, the organization that we were working with and ourselves had done everything we could to lean it out, to be as, as cost-effective, as timely, as, as dependable as could be. But here's the kicker. It was all flying in the belly of a passenger plane that took off every night from Heathrow coming into Chicago. The day the pandemic stopped those flights, the day that people stopped traveling, there was no need for that flight to happen. And suddenly all the people that relied on Flatworld to process and get those FDA regulated goods in, there was no plane to do it and they didn't have the goods and the impact of that down the road now that we're two years later is that client no longer operates in that manner they now have near shored their facility to take care of those goods uh, being manufactured processed and and created here in the u.s and it goes and it's just become much more cost effective for them to get the variability of that whole supply chain from uk to the u.s out of the mix and do it locally so getting back to the whole impact of the supply chain on a global basis it all continues to move and if one of those links stops or is unavailable the the ratchet effect down the road just continues
0: that's so interesting i mean just just one point from that is i had no i i had no idea actually that passenger planes were used for commercial transport i i just assumed uh, cargo planes were were what ferried goods from country to country but passenger planes also take trade goods between nations
1: absolutely uh, the, the i won't say all but i would say the majority the far majority of the belly space on on at least transatlantic trans-pacific passenger planes are actually carrying cargo um, parcels, some mail, whatever it might be, but it's cargo in there, not just suitcases for, for passengers. Had you and I run into each other at a cocktail party in the middle of the pandemic, that'd be something I'd be sharing with everybody too because all of those flights just stopped. They just didn't happen. Um, we, I'll give you a different example. We were importing uh, direct-to-consumer goods from Asia that totally relied on us finding the best available uh, flight, whether it was uh, United, whether it was Delta, whoever it was who had space available, that probably happened two, three times a week. Well, those flights dried up. That entire way of doing business has sort of been put on hold because when those flights came back, there was such limited capacity that now everybody's fighting for that capacity. The price point is so high that it makes it no longer viable for that particular client to use that particular solution anymore. So um, there is certainly a ton of, of not to, to use that as a pun, but a ton of traffic that moves on cargo planes and charters, um, the largest plane in the, in the world. And I think we chartered that five times over the last uh, last 18 months. I think it actually is a Ukrainian plane, the Antonov, um, but uh, I do believe it was the Russians who uh, who ended up uh, blowing it up. So it was uh, it was at an airport that was, was uh, attacked by Russia, and we won't be nobody will be using that plane anymore, unfortunately
0: gosh, everything is interconnected. I'm struck by your, um, your use of a loop in order to sort of illustrate the supply chain. And something that struck me when I was reading on this topic was how profound the crisis over shipping containers were, uh, during the, the COVID pandemic. And that was due to the fact that China, uh, was the biggest exporter of PPE, of personal protective equipment, uh, And of course, every single country in the world had unprecedented demand for face masks, for gloves, for all of those things um, at the same time. And so China began exporting PPE everywhere at the same time. And that led to a huge shortage of shipping containers in China because it had sent these container loads of PPE everywhere, uh, including to countries that it does very little trade with, such as parts of West Africa. Um, so until all those containers started coming back, China had no shipping containers with which to send even more of its goods. There's also been the issue uh, of of truck drivers is another uh, global shortage that. That is that is causing huge amounts of delays uh, the fact that a lot of uh, truck drivers are retiring and not being replaced by younger workers because it's quite it's quite grueling work and has been historically quite low paid what is the uh, what are the sort of the, the bottleneck stresses um, that concern you the most at the moment whether it is the shortage of shipping containers or delivery drivers what would you say at the moment is the sort of the, the weak links in the chain that, that give you the biggest headaches at the moment for your firm?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I was raised overseas. I actually um, I went to, to high school in Singapore. So my first job out of high school uh, in Singapore was uh, a, a accounting administrative clerk to just really count how much the we called them crosses, but they, they were a, a part in the automotive industry, uh, to hook the drive chain together. They were made in Malaysia, brought into Singapore, and then they were shipped out via container. And my job back then was just to make sure they had the right amount in them for the right weight. But, but what I, what always struck me was those containers were going from Johor Bahru through, through Singapore, you get on a, sh- a ship in Singapore and it would end up somewhere in a manufacturing facility and in, in, uh, in Iowa which was where i ended up ironically going to to university but so i always kind of paid attention to how that worked but that container then would be put back on a train back returned back to get all the way back at some point to Malaysia where it was refilled again and sent out again your point about the ppe and and that's very valid one of the biggest causes was There was no situation where people were prepared to receive that PPP, to distribute that PPP, uh, those goods, in many, many, many countries, right? But the the hiccup in the chain is people. If all of a sudden that container gets to a facility, a distribution network that's been shut down for, for seven days because of COVID, now that container is going to have to sit and wait to be unloaded for seven days. And while that might seem not seem like a lot there, that puts it seven days uh, farther back from being available to be filled by something else to go somewhere else to ultimately get back to Asia. And so while while we were dealing throughout all of, of COVID with the stopping of economic activity, either because of the COVID itself or, or maybe government regulation be, through that, um, i.e., China's current no no tolerance policy, they just shut things down. The truth is, the when when it got back up, there wasn't enough people wherever it was going to to get cleared. There weren't enough truck drivers to get it all off the port of Long Beach and to to, to get it over to the railroad and to the dray it and then. And then when it finally gets to the rail yards, wherever it's going, those railroads were so backed up that it was all backed up. This took literally 18 months. We're still unraveling some of this. And just frankly, one of my my, uh, conflicts today has been we were worried about having a rail strike, which was going to compound it even worse. right? So what we did learn, and you asked me a question about what's our, our greatest issue today, what we did learn is we do have the ability to pivot and to figure out how to handle these things and to get past them.
0: That's really, really interesting. Um, something that has got a lot of attention is chips, the international chip shortage. Uh, Taiwan is the overwhelming provider of, of all the world's chips, Where whether it's the chip that goes in a computer or a, or a PlayStation 5, which I think is probably doing very well on, on the black market, given that you you can't just go into a shop and buy one, even though it's been more than a year since it launched, which is crazy in this day and age. Um, And also cars, the delay for buying electric cars at the moment, we were looking at uh, possibly uh, switching our car for an electric model a few months ago, and we were told that there was an 18-month waiting time. Um, uh, One car salesman who also moonlighted at Land Rover told us that he had just sold a fully specced up Range Rover uh, to... To a man who had paid more than two hundred thousand pounds for his car, and by the time he would eventually get it, there would be another newer model, and it would have immediately been dated. Uh, talk to us about the global chip shortage um, and and how that's affected you, if if you if it's had any crossover with any of your business, um, and, and and what you think is uh, going to happen in the near future if it's going to be resolved anytime
1: soon. It, it's interesting. I mean, it, it the the chip shortage hasn't has not not impacted any part of any anybody's economy or business right now 87 percent of semiconductor market comes from china taiwan or south korea that's 87 percent of the semiconductor chips that go in everything from your iphone to the cars you reference to the washing machine to the the computer printer whatever it is it's all coming from those three location those three global entities right and that's why we're all part of this global supply chain that we've got to deal with so um i mentioned to you about uh the auto manufacturer where we were bringing in product to uh to be used in their just-in-time manufacturing of the autos but then they had to shut down well now they're back up and running and the majority there are fleets if you ever go to to dearborn michigan to the auto manufacturing area There are fleets of cars sitting out there that have been built, are totally ready to run off the line, but they're waiting one or two small pieces of which one is probably a chip. So the plants have continued to go. People have actually bought them. Your friend has purchased a vehicle, right? And it could already be manufactured, tires on it, painted, ready to go, looks sharp, but it still can't go out the door because they don't have the chip. Um, That's happening everywhere. And that's, I think the latest thing I heard about the iPhone is now that they're they're migrating and having those manufactured in India where they're going to have chips made in India as well. So um, that's just part of us being a global economy. We spent the last, you know, I, I've said it twice now, but spent the last 25, 30, 50 years becoming a global economy. And when something happens in the, the other side of the globe, it's going to impact everything around it.
0: So that example of how things have just completely changed overnight. You mentioned earlier that something that you are having to factor in uh, is things like rail strikes, and and you've also mentioned countries that have zero-tolerance policies, such as China, and of course, the zero-COVID policy has resulted in a huge amount of disruption because it's put so many factories and manufacturing plants on hold in China, and that, of course, has had huge impacts everywhere. Will we likely see more demand for manufacturing and supply chain businesses in more stable nations? And yet, while asking you that, I don't really know what counts as a stable nation these days because Europe is having a rocky time. The UK has had Brexit and a very harsh COVID experience um, that resulted in a lot of protracted lockdowns compared to other countries. And also right now, we are racked with civil disobedience left, right and centre because of there's a lot of strikes across our industries it's causing a lot of disruption there's there's rising protest movements everywhere so you mentioned that a lot of companies are trying to onshore a lot of their uh, a lot of their processes you mentioned texas is trying to, to to start building towards having the ability to manufacture their own chips do you, do you think that that is a pattern that we might start to see coming forward
2: i think i think is one of uh of the options we talked earlier about risk and risk mitigation And I think that all organizations are looking how to mitigate the risk within their supply chain. I think uh, uh, nearshoring is also important. Cost differentials are not nearly as as much as they used to be between um, around the globe versus just, just Uh, in Mexico. And so I think there are many things that are being done to minimize that risk. Uh, Higher inventory levels, you touched on inventory before, that's kind of what I was speaking to when it comes to our investment in DCs near ports, Um, figuring out how to regulate and have multiple manufacturing or supplier uh, vendor locations, which might cost a little bit more, you're not buying them maybe as big in bulk. But you now have alternate sources of goods coming in. So I think I I would agree with you that reshoring and nearshoring are are both parts of the strategy. But I think, and, and I do this with our own business, to be honest with you, there's never just one answer to replace the answer that didn't work. You always need to look beyond that and say, maybe there's multiple viewpoints we should be looking at on how we address this this issue or this gap or this failing that we had, it's not just supplanting one for the other.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, that was a really interesting conversation and it's so great to have a first-hand account of the scale of the issues. I hope you're in for a smoother ride as the months and years come, although I don't hold out hope that our world is going to be any more relaxing uh, given given the current trajectory of recent events. <laughs>
2: while it's been stressful as hell, I will tell you that it's been a pretty exciting time because for a long time, people didn't really think about the global economy. I mean, it it was always a cool topic, but it never really came as much to people's right in their face as with the pandemic and suddenly they were faced with, what does it mean when somebody in Asia or somebody in, in Hong Kong can't do their job and how does that impact to your point the person who's trying to get their Amazon packages in Florida. And so while it's stressful, it's pretty cool to be part of it.
0: We turn now to my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, who knows all too well that disruption to our just-in-time supply chain can cause pandemonium if any of the links in the chain fails. With a country like the UK, an island that imports almost half of the food it consumes, any disruption to this delicate operation can very soon go from a logistics crisis to a political and even security crisis as well.
3: Well, it certainly occurred to me because I think I had sort of experience professionally of being aware of the extraordinary vulnerabilities uh, and our dependence. Mm-hmm you know, on complex networks, which, you know, globalization created. And the other point, which I think is crucial in looking at these problems, is that so many industries, you know, so many of the basics of life are built around just-in-time supply chains. What I mean by that is there's virtually no redundancy. Um, There's very little storage. And even where there is storage you know there are huge problems of maintenance durability keeping them up to date and uh, you know we live in a world where we've taken this hugely for granted and we haven't really been forced to consider you know how quickly they can break down i mean i can give you an example which i think is a very good one which some people will remember i mean you may remember this uh it was certainly when i was in my previous career the tanker drivers strike when the whole supply system for gasoline and diesel and heating oil completely broke down because you know there's an effective tanker drivers strike and then a, an effective picket on the points of distribution and it turned very very quickly into a major domestic emergency, it happened whilst Blair was prime minister, and uh, you know it was a taste of the, the the absolute chaos that can be caused very very quickly when essential supplies, in particular, you know, are not rolling.
0: That was, I believe that was in the year 2000, and the headlines are quite cataclysmic. NHS put on emergency footing, army ambulances deployed, post, banks, buses, food threatened, Britain grinds to a halt as Blair's pleas are ignored. Now, it's said that he refused to rule out the use of troops or the recall of parliament. I mean, how much could this sort of thing constitute a risk to national security?
3: Well, I think it's exactly what it does. Well, all I'm going to say is that one had to put together teams of people uh who had the ability you know to think creatively to try to uh, compensate for the disruption um and you know, I, I although you know it was nothing to do with my job at all because I was not involved in as it were domestic issues, but I did in that instance. Could get sucked in, and had to um, literally help uh, you know number ten put together all sorts of emergency arrangements, um, which worked reasonably effectively in, in mitigating the, the the major impact. But I mean, it was a it was a very very good illustration of just how desperately sensitive these supply chain issues are. But i I mean I think looking back on my life because I, I, I you should see this in perspective, I was brought up in a village which there were basic supplies available, but none of the infrastructure that one later in life took for granted was there you know there was one telephone box in the center of the village. no one had telephones um you know there was certainly no information technology to communicate with a lot of Food supplies were based on swap and subsistence with local farmers and local producers. Uh, Food was largely seasonal. And I mean, what was interesting about that type of situation is you weren't very vulnerable to outside interventions because the community had learned how to live on its own. And, you know, for example, most houses baked their own bread, there was a lot of butchering done on the farms. Uh, it, you know, it was just a, a, a different lifestyle, and I think people forget, you know, how recently our lives became so complex and sophisticated. Uh, and certainly, you know, during, let's say, the, the the high point, the high tide of globalization, uh, you know, we've depended massively on just in time supplies, which are containers, as you so correctly put it, arriving. Uh, and delivering the goods and going back to their point of destination to fill up again. And they are loops. And the moment that loop's broken, things start going desperately wrong.
0: You you paint such a bucolic, nostalgic picture of uh, World War II su- subsistence. Um, but going back to what you were saying earlier about your, your previous parish, that's really interesting because, as you say, I wouldn't have thought that MI6 had anything to do with uh, those kinds of domestic issues but was it more all hands on deck kind of thing because it was such a crisis?
3: It was all hands on deck. I I had a close personal relationship with the Prime Minister (laughs) he basically said help and you know I think we all ended up people who we knew were capable um, who could help and could you know stitch together sort of emergency arrangements. And, um, you know, that's what we did. There was it nothing to do with my professional responsibilities at all. It was just that I was in a group of people who, well, everybody was so affected by that. And I, I, I can't think of a more, well, apart from COVID, I mean, I can't think of a more disruptive industrial event in terms of the day-to-day life of everybody, uh, because everyone was so you know dependent on fuel supplies.
0: Right so that's interesting. Covid was accidental more, uh, more or less the the strikes that you mentioned they were not accidental but perhaps the you know the damage caused by them was a byproduct of of the strikes. So the question I have for you is how would one in theory Go about deliberately attacking a supply chain, and we've seen recently the Nord Stream attacks uh, earlier this month. The Swedish prosecutors came out with a statement saying that traces of explosives had been found at the sites of the multiple leaks from the gas pipelines, and that that happened back in September. But this month, the Swedish prosecutors said that they could now confirm those leaks were the result of sabotage. And of course, we don't know who did it, but everyone suspects it was the Russians. Uh, we also saw earlier in the Ukraine-Russia war, something that we talked about with Brian Wenk. The world's largest plane, the Antonov An-255, a huge, huge thing, monstrous plane. It was blown up by Russian airstrikes as it was sitting in an airfield near Kiev. And the Ukrainian foreign minister accused the Russians of being behind the strikes and of deliberately blowing up an important symbol uh, of Ukraine and Ukrainian exceptionalism. The Ukrainian state defense company that managed the plane said that the aircraft had been totally destroyed and it would be rebuilt at a cost of, I think it was three billion US dollars over a period of five years. So how would one, particularly as we've seen so much of this damage in in recent years, how would any hostile actors, non-state or state actors go about weaponizing this kind of destruction?
3: Well, I don't want to give people ideas. (laughs) So it's quite a sensitive subject in a way. But you look at a country's critical infrastructure and you look at the key points of vulnerability and you look at how well protected they are. And, of course, there are all sorts of ways and means now of taking them down. Okay, you're watching the war in Ukraine, you can see the Russians trying to take down Ukraine's power uh, and water infrastructure and hitting the substations and, you know, knocking out towns and cities and, you know, all sorts of ways and means. And, uh, of course, the other thing now is that most bits of critical infrastructure are cyber-controlled. So you're going to look at people's cyber defenses and whether you can actually get inside their systems Uh, and if they haven't got good security then you can cause chaos pretty damn quickly and you know there are lots of famous incidents where one has seen um, accidental or natural events I, i mean there was a famous ice storm in New England which took out massive amounts of the critical infrastructure and for example everything pretty much shut down because barcode readers wouldn't work bank machines stopped paying out and i mean that lasted for four or five days it was one it, it, because it it took down so many of the power lines so many of the sort of substations were knocked out. And there was another incident, um, I think, in New Zealand, where the main power cable to Christchurch, I think it was. One of the cities in New Zealand was, was cut in a manner that was difficult to repair, and that caused absolute chaos. So you've only got to look at nodal points and critical points. But I think that in response now, a lot of more attention has been paid nationally Uh, to protection of critical infrastructure. And, for example, in the UK, we have a much more developed system than we used to for protection of critical infrastructure and um, GCHQ's protection of the nation's cyber security, particularly as it relates to the operation of critical infrastructure. So, I mean, I think these issues are pretty well known and understood and I, I, you probably may not recall this, but the IRA or the provisional IRA during their bombing campaign started looking at things like gasworks and bridges uh, and other sort of nodal points in the economy, not to kill people so much. And well, uh, they didn't seem to care much whether they did or not, but to take out critical infrastructure and therefore have massive sort of knock-on effect over very large numbers of people.
0: Um, Richard, how can we protect global supply chains from attack not just in terms of cyber security is it a case of as wenk described to us in the course of the interview more firms onshoring parts of their production and manufacturing process and moving everything closer to home so that there isn't this long chain of vulnerability managed by all of these digital systems which are vulnerable to cyber attack as as we've been talking about
3: well i think the lessons of covid and the lessons of uh, let's say uh more adversarial relationship with china and with russia are that when you get to bits of the economy which are critical to national security or national survival then you're probably going to onshore and i think the the days are past when you are willing to depend on a supply chain from a country which I wasn't isn't necessarily an enemy, but certainly isn't a natural ally, because that increases your vulnerability. And we've seen you know how that can operate. Um I, I think it, it creates huge difficulties. And I'm sure that, you know, in the United States, um there's a lot lot of unshoring And recently you will have seen that um Um, chip company in Wales owned by, I think it's Nexperia, two years ago uh, wrote to the government uh, about my concerns of that being owned by a Chinese company and okay, now at long last we have an outcome and um, it's not going to be owned by a Dutch company with a majority Chinese shareholder so it's going to remain in the UK hands, which I think is incredibly important and I mean, we've seen this happen. Obviously, the whole business of five G, in terms of the inf- national infrastructure for the for the mobile telephone network. I mean, that was uh, an incredible example. I, I just can't believe that we ever got so far in planning it, and uh, and would have allowed it to, you know, be a contract handled by Huawei. But people came to their senses, which is very reassuring.
0: I I just wanna go back to the UK. We in the UK, we're an island, so we can't really onshore a great deal of what we need and what we consume and what we rely on, whether it's medical supplies or groceries, electronics, energy, even our workforce. We need all of that from overseas. So would you say the UK is especially at risk from hostile interventions when it comes to our supply chain? And do you think, given what you know and understand about how our government works, that we are really at speed with the risks and the mitigation we need to take in order to secure our supply chains. I mean, there were headlines of Michael Gove carrying out these sorts of war game scenarios where Brexit might have caused some of our ports to shudder to a halt and what the ramifications of our just-in-time supply chain, what the consequences could be if it were ever disrupted or blocked. Is there a government department that is responsible for wargaming or hypothesising or predicting uh, what happens when, let's say, our national grid goes offline, or if air traffic control gets shut down, or if all the systems which govern our ports and airports, if they get taken offline? What government department is in charge of looking at, first of all, what happens when that happens and what are the subsequent knock-on impacts of that and what are the sort of the backup, get back, get back online sort of protocols and scenarios?
3: It's interdepartmental because those problems are complex. Um, so what you're looking at... Is a role for uh, the Cabinet Office and the Cabinet Office, which let's face it is s- s- the prime ministerial department in government, which is staffed multi. St- I mean, staffed by seconded civil servants from all sorts of different parts of government. And uh, if there's an emergency like that, or if there's a growing emergency, a growing concern, it's going to be a, a Cobra which stands for the cabinet office briefing whatever it is um you know we'll come together and i mean obviously during the cold war there was a whole infrastructure uh that existed um which could be wheeled out in the threat of war um i don't know a lot of that really was dismantled and went by the board it's interesting to speculate now with war in Ukraine and nuclear threats being made by Putin, whether some of that's being put back in place. But, I mean, we have neglected over years uh, the sort of Cold War infrastructure, which which was you know emergency government and where you went and when there was a threat of nuclear war. And it was all very highly secret and highly classified. I think a lot of it now has come out in the public domain. The book's written about it. And uh, people have visited the installations that were built and all of that sort of thing. But it's been run down and it hasn't been used. But I I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a government committee now sitting and considering what might need to be recreated or what might need to be put back in place.
0: I think that's really fascinating. I'm sure the Queen has a... Oh, God, we can't say that anymore, can we? I'm sure the royal family have their... Uh, their doomsday scenario plans, but the the rest of us need to need to get to grips with it as well. I think that's a really intriguing, interesting thought, if a bit gloomy to end on.
3: <laughs> well, once upon a time, I was part of all of that when, <laughs> in my previous life, but it, it you know it didn't interfere. I mean, it 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 you know maybe once or twice a year something happened which was uh, you know re- reminded you that all this stuff was there. The probability now is that it's, it's been dismantled, but I would say there's probably some consideration about recreating something.
0: That's it for this episode of One Decision. If you enjoyed this conversation, why not subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode? We have new drops every Thursday. From me and the team, thank you so much for listening. See you next time.